Hi folks, this is uh, Tony Rissa from the So What's Your Story podcast. Just letting you know that this week the audio might sound a little funny, but it's because we did that live event we were talking about at uh, Warwick Community College. Uh, thanks to all of you who came out, and for those of you who couldn't make it, this is what it sounded like. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we're going to have Melissa Reddish, who is an assistant uh, professor of English here at Warwick Community College. She has published My Father's an Angry, Angry Storm Cloud with Tailwinds Press in 2016, and she did Girl in Flame with Conium Press in 2017. And she's currently working on another novel, which is as of yet un- untitled. Um, and she's also the assistant, or no, she's also the faculty editor, editor of Echoes and Visions Literary Arts Journal. So thanks for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, this is actually the second time you've been on the podcast with us. It is. Yeah. <laughs> First time at Warwick, though. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about um, being the faculty editor of Echoes and Visions. I know... Um, one of the we're getting we're going to have Gina Vieira on the show, and she's actually the student um, editor. And so you're you sort of I guess you work kind of in tandem with her to create the the journal. Yeah, absolutely. So it is so amazingly fun uh, because I get to read all the submissions of all the fantastic, talented students that we have here at Warwick. And, you know, we we have, you know, an arts history class and we have English classes, but we don't really have um, an entire English or arts degree. Um, We don't really have any creative writing classes. So there aren't always too many creative outlets at Warwick in terms of their classes. Um, So Eleanor Phillips Cubbage actually created this arts journal as one potential outlet for students and she created it in 1989 um, so that students could publish you know their their artwork whether it's painting or drawings um, they could publish uh, creative writing uh, poetry plays fiction nonfiction you name it um, and so we could celebrate all the work that uh, students are creating. And so what I get to do is I get to read all of that work every year um, and see all of the, the crazy things that students are doing that we might not know of. Because um, unless they share that in class, we, we just don't know um, the, the creativity. Uh, and then I get to work with other student editors uh, along with other faculty editors um, to decide which works we're gonna publish. We oftentimes work with those students um, who we like their work, but we don't think maybe it is quite polished enough and quite ready for for publication, so we'll work with them on revisions. Then we work with editing the pieces, and finally we sequence and lay out the magazine. Um, another one of our professors, uh, Dr. Char- uh, Chuck Porter, um, usually helps design the cover, and so you know we get a lot of people involved. Um, and then we send it off to the the printer, and we've used various printers over the years, and it comes back this beautiful, perfect bound, tangible object. Um, that contains so much original creativity um, from all of our students here. Now, in the early drafts, do you um, do you review everyone? Like, it's not like a, a regular literary magazine where you get three lines in and all right, this isn't going to make it. You 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 go through each of the each of the submissions all the way, right? Absolutely, to get a, to get a sense of what can be because a lot of it's going to need to be in the end at least revised a little bit. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm right. like, you know, because um, I, I was a reader for a little while for the Del Marva Review, and, you know, you're going to get something like you know, hundreds upon hundreds of submissions, so you can't feasibly read each submission all the way through. But, uh, you know, the, the most we've ever gotten is 100 submissions, um, which was great. Actually, we got 110 submissions last year, mm. um, which was a fantastic number. Um, but I was able to go through and read each and every one, and so I can see the, the, the strengths and the areas for opportunity. Um, and even if you, we don't wind up publishing every piece, a lot of times we can give students you know, individualized feedback to let them know, you know where the strengths are and what they might focus on, and especially if we want them to submit again. Right, and so part of the selection process is um, some peer review. Would that be, like, so I, I know that Gina is, is involved in it, so there potentially is going to be this moment where they have friends who are going to be in the, the thing, but then how do you balance that with, you know, Making sure that the, you know, you don't upset your friends, but also making sure that the the magazine's going to be as, as good as it can be. So I guess there's a bit of, um, you know, it's a kind of that the first learning curve of criticism and feedback, and I'm sure that probably plays a role, in, especially on the feedback side. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, because it's a learning experience for the students too. You know, a lot of them haven't actually worked on a literary journal before, and so they haven't had to read submissions um, and and sort of work on the the revision and the editing and and talk about what they like and didn't like. They'll know automatically whether they like something, but trying to articulate what it is you like or what it is you don't like um, has been really an invaluable process. And pretty much all of our editors also submit. So not only do they have the experience of having to you know potentially talk about their friends and what they like or don't like, but then they have to sit there and listen to their own piece being critiqued. And what we tell them is, okay, this is going to be awkward. It's going to be uh, a little bit difficult to hear. Um, however, this is going to be really beneficial for you as a writer. So you can see in real time how other people are responding to your work. Um, and, and so, of course, when we have our conversations, we always have them with the mind that the person might be there listening. Right. Um, so those are the kinds of conversations we have. So yeah, it takes a little while to get used to, but then as soon as they get used to it, they uh, really get into the process of critiquing and articulating kind of their own artistic thoughts and vision, and they figure out what it is they, they respond to as a reader. And I can see that sort of taking shape, and it's really cool. What I think is fascinating about this is that since you don't have like a, an English program you can encourage people from other disciplines. Yeah, absolutely. And we ask all of our students to submit um, like a one, two, maybe even three sentence biography. So you have definitely a lot of students who are general studies, but then you have pe people who are like, you know, I majored in radiologic technician. Yeah, I was a nurse. And, and so you, you get to see those careers and those paths that aren't necessarily English even adjacent, um, where they, they find that creative outlet. Right. And I think that's probably one of the beautiful things about a community college is that everybody, you know, has a chance to participate, you know, kind of across the board, whereas, you know, you and I are Washington College, you <laughs> right. know, and you very quickly get pigeonholed, okay, you're in the English lit program and you're over here, and yeah. you don't see a lot of business majors, you know, vying for our Sophie Kerr prize, you know, it's, <laughs> right. it's really, you know, sort of pigeonholed. So I think that it's really... I think it says a lot for the program that it's it is open and you see people from all different, you know, side you know, through the spectrum of the curriculum here that are participating and, and finding, you know, that they can be involved in the creative arts, you know, 
you know, here at Warwick. And even as a faculty member, when I was uh, teaching as an adjunct at American University, I pretty much never wandered outside of the English department. But here, I actually have conversations regularly with people of other departments. So, you know, there's a certain degree of pigeonholing in any, you know, place, but I think at a community college, it is just kind of more open, and there's a little bit more crossing of the divide. When you're starting to bring your uh, editors along and how to and how to be uh, a literary journal editor, what are some of the what are some of the barriers? Like because for me, I'm a I'm an awful teacher, but I'm a pretty good editor. Like I, I, I can <laughs> I can I can say okay, can, I can see where you were going, but you didn't get there or whatever. Right. But that's that's something that it takes practice. You have to you have to have a, a lot of critical reading experience and. A lot of times, kids who are still in college don't don't have that. So, yeah. what, what 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 was what do you think the biggest bar is, and how do you overcome it? I think it's really sometimes just having the um, trust in your own instincts, which I think is the biggest hurdle that we have to cross. Because uh, so many of the people who choose to be editors do it because they love reading, um, and they've actually done a fairly good job honing their critical eye already, You know, both in terms of their English classes, and then just because they're reading so much outside of class as well. But they don't necessarily think of themselves as writers or as you know literary critics. Mm. Um, so they have all these opinions, but they don't really trust those opinions, that they're the right ones, that um, they have the authority to express them, um, that when they see where, you know, a piece and, and what's wrong with it, that they can articulate what that is. Um, so I think it's really just helping to guide them and allow them the space to express their ideas, even if they have, feel like they might be wrong. Yeah, and I think that will speak to your strength as a professor to be able to say, no, you, you can do this. You have these skills. You can pull this forward. And I think that's you know, not just part of the learning experience, but I think there's also, it sounds like there's a bit of a mentoring component, you know, that you may find a student, you know, like Gina, mm-hmm. who's, who has a very real interest in this and who's, you know, really trying to push her own craft forward. And then, you know, sometimes we get so focused on ourselves as writers that we forget that there's other jobs, other hats that we can wear. Right. And I think, you know, having, you know, a professor that can mentor you through to understand that and develop your own confidence in that is, is huge. It's got to be mission critical. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's really cool. We um, Just this last cycle with the journal, we had one piece that was submitted that was absolutely beautifully, gorgeously written. You know, just the descriptions were detailed, they were on point, they were vivid, they were evocative. Um, but we have this voting mechanism on submittable, um, which a lot of literary journals use, that allow us to decide and see quickly at a glance whether we want the piece to be in the journal or not. And it was pretty split down the middle. Like, half of the people voted yes, half of the people voted no, and then... Um, um, there were even a couple people who clicked that maybe button, which we tell them try, to try to avoid. And so we were trying to figure out what is it about this piece, which is, seems so beautifully written, that we're still kind of on the fence about. Um, and even I wasn't entirely sure, uh, because just at first glance, it seemed like perfect for the journal. And through our conversation, um, we were able to figure out that there really wasn't a conflict yet. Uh, the, even though it was absolutely gorgeous, um, there, there was nothing at stake. There was no reason for the protagonist to be wandering around and it was through this sort of like open-ended kind of 
freewheeling conversation um, that I, I didn't necessarily, you know, sort of aggressively take the helm and say this is why, uh, that we were all able to discover that and communicate that back to the author so that while made this piece may not make it in, you know, later pieces probably would if, if this particular author attends to this fairly critical part, right. you right. know, of, of writing the story. Yeah. But you have to give someone credit that they, they had your attention and you're like, oh wait, no, no. Literally nothing happened. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> but it didn't happen beautifully. <laughs> yeah. It was just a, a gorgeous, you know, a wandering through right. through this forest. <laughs> yeah, maybe they should uh, try that as a poem maybe next time. <laughs> yeah. So in your own writing, you, you said you, you said you're working on a book and, and, you, and you have children and you're, and you're teaching. So mm. how do you find ways to make space to get your own writing done? I'll, I'll show you one of my, I, I have a future problem. I don't want to write for 10 minutes. I, if, I, if I can't sit for four hours, I don't bother. And then sometimes I'm like, well, that means you're not going to get anything done. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to make choices. So, so how do you make your choices and what are they? Well, the nice thing about teaching is there is a chunk of time in the summer that I'm not teaching. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually, and this is what I've always done historically, is I've just sort of like thrown all my eggs in my summer basket. And so I'll do a little bit of work during the school year, but I'll do the majority of my writing during the summer. But with kids, that sort of complicates things because it's not like they just sort of disappear into thin air during the summer. I do actually still have to take care of them as well. So I've had to, you know, adjust that strategy a bit. And... Um, sort of like what you were just saying, like actually allow myself to just work on uh, my writing for a small period of time to say, okay, it's right before bed. Um, I, I don't have any other work to do. And I have this 30 minutes before I'm going to pass out right. and <laughs> no longer be conscious. What can I get done in this 30 minutes? And what is just like one tiny detail in the novel that I'm working on that's been nagging at me that I can maybe go back and reread and, and think about. And so just sort of like really scaling back with what I can accomplish uh, on any given day is kind of the only way I can go about it. Yeah, I think scale is kind of a good thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, we were having this conversation, I can't remember, with some, somebody recently, and they were like, you can't wait to be inspired. Mm -hmm. You know, if every writer just waited until we were inspired to sit down and write, you you would never write. You know, it's <laughs> right. like, because it doesn't work like that. You know, you have to, like, get the time and put it in and schedule it out. So, um, you know, when you're talking about that, I certainly kind of thought of that scale. But one of the questions I, I have for you is, you know, in My Father is an Angry Storm Cloud, which I love that collection so mm -hmm. much. Is this new, is this new untitled, and those are short stories, is this new novel sort of kind of a take on any of that? Are you still sort of working in that same genre of sort of these tiny surprises or? Yeah, it's sort of a, like, I'm sort of dipping my toe into science fiction, though with the rest of my body, I think firmly planted in the realm of magical realism that I'm much right. more comfortable with. Right. So it's it's a world much like ours, but it's one in which, you know, at the end of people's lives, they reverse back to being an infant. Um, but all the rest of the details of the world are, are pretty much identical to ours. The only thing I wanted to talk about when it came to, like, this, this idea of, of carving out time is there's also like for me again like a tr like almost like a time travel element of it mm -hmm. um, if I set something aside for too long I read it and I'm like okay that's what that's about and now I'm out of time or right <laughs> <laughs> or, I'm, or, or I'm going along and I, I, I catch myself it just happened to me this week catching myself attacking the same 
like there's this there's there's this problem and it just cannot be solved. And recently I've decided that I've never tried beating anything to death before, but I I feel like maybe sometimes <laughs> beating things to death work. Do you take different approaches when you run into these like you said, these bumps that you just are you know, nailing over and over again? Yeah, definitely. Um, and sometimes I just have to set aside that problem for a while because clearly I have not, my brain has not figured it out. Right. You know, I've not figured out the solution and I just need to step aside from it and focus on a, a different, perhaps smaller, more tangible problem. And it, you, it's funny what you said about like kind of getting in the headspace again, because especially with writing a novel, you know, you have to get in that headspace and that takes time. It you does. Know? It takes so long. Yeah, just to reread and sort of remember the characters and the voice that you've created and sort of the flow of the sentences and then how much time do you have left mm. after that which is why I think it's helpful to focus on just like this one particular scene because otherwise I'll just start rereading the whole thing and then my 30 minutes are up yeah it, it really is a rhythm and I think sometimes we forget about that part you know when you're sitting down and if you walk away from a piece I think um, I just finished the first draft of the book that I'm working on and um, I just read Stephen King's on on uh, on writing, yeah. you know, a memoir of the craft, and he said, you know, after you finish something, you put it away for six weeks, and so I did that, and when I went back to it, I was like, who wrote this? Like, I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even recognize my own work at that point, so yeah. I do feel like, like, if you're going to be in this space, it, it has to be, you have to maintain the rhythm of it, or if you break the rhythm, it feels like so much more energy to get back into that headspace that, that you were talking about. Well, for me, what I, what I, what I attempted this week before, and then gave up and started just sledgehammering it, was I tried to remember what I felt like mm -hmm. the last time I sat down. Like, if you can't remember what you were thinking, sometimes you can remember what you were feeling. And um, so, because I'm huge, to theme is usually my thing. Like, I'm like, find the theme, and, and then I'm good. And I said, you know what, let's, let's give tone a shot, because theme isn't working today. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to remember how, how I felt about it as I was writing and that again it helped a little bit until I ran into this brick wall that that just is still there from the last time I <laughs> gave up on it. Yeah and I sometimes I think just having you know and this is something all writers say but having a physical space that's different um, has been really helpful for me because you know switching from an academic mindset to a creative one is very tough and then I've been, had to add mother on top of that and mother is sort of its own sort of headspace where you're trying to keep lists and and deal with the day-to-day -day minutia of you know, food and drink and baths and you know, what words are they saying today and all of that and that sort of permeates literally every space within the house um, so I found that uh, I've actually started writing in my bedroom more and on my bed, which has sort of become my own little private oasis of, of creative writing space that I can just say to myself, okay, I'm not going to do any of my professional work here. You know, I'm not a mom in this space. Um, I can just be a writer. And, and doing that enough um, has, has helped to train my brain that when I sit in the bed with my laptop, um, I automatically pull up a Word document instead of automatically pulling up Facebook. Because yeah. I feel like it is sort of retraining myself to out of those habits yeah. that you, you get used to. Yeah, I sort of, in the, sort of similarly, I have um, a typewriter that I keep like close to our outside porch. And so whenever I sort of get to a place where I can't, like I can't sit at my desk any longer, like I just grab that typewriter and just literally go outside in the yard. And it just feels like such a, it just changes everything you you're out like you change 
like how you're writing, how you're typing, how you're moving, where you're sitting. And it just, it, it really does, something in your brain does go, oh, different, you know, <laughs> like new setting, here we are. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. I thought you were going to follow up with that. No, sorry. Um, so, as you're, as you're getting ready to finish the second novel, you're going to have to start to think about publishing it. Do you still have a relationship with your, with your publisher? Like, do they know what's coming? Or, or like, what's the process like? Because this is your third... Yes, it'll be my third. So what? What? So what's what's the third one like? Is, is, how is it different from the first two? The, as far as the publication process? Well, I haven't really decided um, where I'm going to go publication-wise because honestly, it's not even in a place yet where I feel like I can think about that. Uh, it's it's still so rough and it it's still in an early draft form. Um, I really like small presses. Mm -hmm. I think I'll probably stick with small presses, and I, I certainly still talk to the editors of both of the other presses, so they don't know that I'm working on a novel, but um, I certainly will probably tell them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there were two different presses, so is it just as simple as like, hey, I've, I've got something, would you like to take a look at it before I start shopping it around for real? Or is, 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 that, is that kind of the tone of the email? Or? Yeah, I think it would be. Um, because both of the presses I, I came to just through their open submission periods, mm. um, but now that I actually have a book published with them, um, I, I think they would be okay with me just sort of emailing them and say, hey, I have this other thing. Are you interested? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the, other, the other thing is we, we always talk about trying to get trying to get the attention of, of readers because that's just, like, even even once it's published, it's still not sufficient if, if it doesn't get read. Mm -hmm. And did, do you find that you have any luck getting readers one way over another way? Is that... <laughs> I just had my colleague wave to me, and I do think the people I personally know have been a huge support network and probably my main readers. Um, but I tried to also sort of keep um, into the, the sort of literary small press world, uh, you know, reviewing other people's books, um, publishing in journals, you know, going to readings, um, local readings, and readings in like Baltimore and Pennsylvania. Um, I, I think that's kind of some of the way, especially if you're publishing small press, to, to find your readers is to find your community of people who are also publishing like things and to not only talk to them, but to, to get some of their tips and tricks as well. And to have you know two people go to have a reading together that's going to draw more people than just a single person. Right, and I think having that sense of community is really important for writers, you know, to be able to say that, you know, you have a colleague who's, you mm -hmm. know, doing reading for you, but also to, like, you know, it is a very lonely thing that we do, so I think having that sense of, like, you know, I know that I have these people that will read for me, I know I have these people that I can pitch to, mm -hmm. I know that I've, you know, it, it feels like you've kind of developed, like, a really, really kind of warm nest of, you know, uh, kind of support. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because it is just such a weird, isolating thing, right? I can't remember, it was some meme online where someone described writing as just sort of staring off into space and hallucinating vividly, you know, for several <laughs> hours a day and attempting to transcribe that. I'm like, yeah, that is pretty much what it is. I just hallucinate vividly for a couple hours and attempt my best to transform that into words. Exactly. Yeah. As, as you're getting ready, the journal's not out just yet. Is it coming out soon? 
Um, the Echoes and Visions? Yes. Yes. yes, we're about to start reading um, for this year's Echoes and Visions. So we accept submissions um, pretty much until early May, like May 5th, uh, essentially once classes are over. Um, and then we meet with uh, the student editors and other um, student fa or faculty editors, uh, and we start putting the whole thing together. And when you're when when it comes out, is it is it something that you make available here on campus? Is it something that you make available online? How can people get the the journal once it's out? Um, we have a lot of physical copies here on campus. We usually stock them in the bookstore, and there are a couple other hotspots on campus we try to put them, like in the media center um, and some of the main offices. And then, of course, we'll just have you know boxes in arts and humanities. It's probably easiest to get a copy if you come physically onto campus. We don't really have an electronic version right. of it right now. And it's so beautiful. Like You just want to hold it in your hands. Um, we used to charge $5 for the journal um, a long time ago, but uh, with our population, you know, if people have to choose between like buying a sandwich and buying a journal they're going to choose the sandwich so we decided to make the journal free so that it could you know reach the widest audience possible um, and that's it's been great we've actually had years that we've given away um, pretty much every copy of the journal which is my most ideal situation so that everyone gets to read it I think that's great like I think the accessibility you know again sort of circling it back to like that so many people get a chance to be in it so many people get to approach it and then you know, on the other end, maybe somebody's not necessarily interested in reading or, I mean, in submitting, maybe they're still trying to work up the nerve for that. Mm -hmm. But at least if they see it, then they know that it is a possibility. And, you know, and I think that accessibility component um, is, is really important to, to the work that is being done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it kind of creates a space for people who are creative to say, like, yes, there is a space for you here. Um, you just have to figure out who's in charge of this journal and come find us. <laughs> and, and this is a warm and welcoming place for creative types. And do you find that you have the same people submit time after time? Do you find that, that, that the, uh, the, the journal helps people find one another? Oh, I saw your thing. Did you see my thing in, in the journal kind of... Uh, conversation um, I'll definitely see the same name submitting year after year and there will sometimes be some years where we don't accept anything and then like the third year we're like yes this poem this is you know wonderful we want to publish this um, and so we get to you know deliver that good news and I've definitely seen people you know kind of sort of like point to each other and be like hey wait I recognize your name you know I, I read your story um, there's a young woman we published whose first name was, is Emerald and so Emerald is a very unique name um, and she was in my honors critical thinking and writing class and suddenly I had another student in the class turn to her and go oh you're Emerald and I was like that's oh great. yay <laughs> that's very nice so sweet. <laughs> when you have to reject something do you say why or like I know that once you get to scale it's hard to say anything other than this isn't right for us at this time mm -hmm. but is that something what's the what's the rejection process like for people who are considering it honestly depends how many submissions we get. When we got 110, we couldn't feasibly right. provide feedback on all of them. So we usually we saved the feedback for the ones that were close. Mm -hmm. You know, the ones that you know had kind of that. Uh, split score um, that we really had a long conversation about so that people could become privy to that conversation because you know as a writer you submit things into the void and you wait an indeterminate amount of time and then you know it's usually just a quick no sorry for your luck and that's yeah. it um, and, I, and I as much as possible don't want students to have that experience because that can be very disheartening you have to yeah. form a really thick skin to not take that sort of thing personally to have no sort of extrinsic um, kind of validation or encouragement. Um, but when there are fewer submissions, we can obviously offer more personalized feedback. 
and especially for the people who are close because you do want to encourage them to submit again um, because they got they got so close you want to know that you're close it's always tough to read a journal and say I, I would love to know why right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that has happened to uh, both of us where we submitted and then you know you see the journal come out and you're like oh wow, how did I get rejected? <laughs> so, but I think you're right. I think, you know, learning that, you know, to have a thick skin, but it seems like sort of a, an easy way to develop, you know, that because you're, if you're going to continue to be a writer, that's something you've got to figure out pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to be a writer, I think working as an editor is one of the best ways to become a better writer, to actually sit in and having to read a whole bunch of submissions and figure out what's working and not working. It just makes so much clearer some of those lessons we learn, right. particularly about having like a really good hook in the beginning of your story, right. you know? Yeah, and I think sometimes it's easier to see like in, some, in, in another piece of work exactly what's working and exactly what's not working. I think sometimes it's harder to translate that when we're doing the work ourselves because right. we're so busy hallucinating and <laughs> writing it down that, you know, we're not always... We're not always obviously we're not the best judges of our own work. So yeah. I think sometimes seeing something else and being like, oh, this is how it's not done, or, <laughs> or this is oh, this was really good. I see something here that I can learn from. So I think yeah. it's you know the thing about whether you're on the writer's side or whether you're on the editor's side. I mean, you're just always learning at every turn and every stage. And I think it's a really good lesson that the writers and the editors for for your magazine are figuring out young. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Stephanie, now this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, <laughs> Melissa, thank you for being back on the podcast. It was a delight. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.